Good morning, lovely to see you. If you have a Bible, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is occasionally necessary to stop the flow of our whatever sermon series we're in to address matters as they arise, and obviously, given what happened this morning, it probably seems a little weird to you, it still seems a little weird to me. <laughs> I've been uh, an elder now for 10 years. This is the first time I've, I've actually participated in something like this, and so it required a great deal of study since June. And so what I want to do is just explain what happened and how we are supposed to respond to it so to a lot, you know, to deal with any fears or uncertainties um, that you might have. So before we open God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Paul to the Corinthians. I pray that as we open your word and hear what he had to say to the church there, that we ourselves would not only learn about you, but learn more about ourselves as a church, as individuals, as families. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would give us humility and mercy. Lord, that we would Lord, glorify you, that we would know you better, Lord, and that we would serve you uprightly. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son and amen. <clears throat> now, consider the, the way the world handles a word like love. Love is spoken of a great deal. And how does the world usually describe the word love? Well, the world asserts that love is in fact the opposite of something like discipline, because discipline requires judgment. And judging is something that you must not do in modern ethics. No, 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 no. No judging. No judging of any kind. How dare you? How dare you even think about it? And the world has learned this from us, right? How many times in the last couple of years have you heard Christians say, well, Jesus says don't judge one another? And he does say that. But what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Does he mean um, to never, ever, ever consider whether what, what someone is doing is good or bad? Or perhaps, does he mean, what you ought not to do is sit there in your own self-righteousness and condemn anyone for the actions that they are doing. Which is it? Now, what the world likes, right? They don't like discipline. They like words like open. They like words like affirming. They like words like tolerance. These are synonyms for love. And where do they learn that? Right? If you go down to any, any church in the neighborhood that has rainbows all over the outside, you will see these words, affirming, tolerant, welcoming to all people. And what do they mean by that? That means that they will not judge you. They will not judge you. Just come. There's no judgment here. You come as you are and you stay as you are. But what kind of Christianity is that? What kind of faith is that? What kind of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is that? Is that what Jesus does? He came into the world and he was surrounded by all of those intolerant Jewish scribes and he said, oh, you know what? I affirm you guys. I you know, I'm open. I'm open to hear everything you have to say, right? Or did he say, woe to you, you bag of snakes? Now, the scriptures teach us that discipline is actually a form of love. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, I have sat with many parents who are at their wit's end as to what to do, and the obvious answer is in the glue stick that I give them to take home. I show them what, how to use it, how to apply it, and they can't bring themselves to do it because they love their child too much. And it is a hard sell to then argue that actually the problem is you don't love your child at all. 
But this is, the, this is how the word of God is. This is how our God is. The, his ways are not our ways. His wisdom is foolishness to us. And, and what he calls love, we hate it. Right? Because we don't want to hear what he has to say. We don't want to obey him. We, we, we don't want to affirm him. We'll affirm anything but him. Right? We'll, uh, we'll affirm anything in, <laughs> that you want to bring forward as religious, as true, as beautiful, as good. We'll affir- we're supposed to affirm it all, but we are not supposed to affirm the Lord God. Now, to hate correction is to give oneself over to death. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Right? When, when the Lord Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's, he's saying, come and I will discipline you. Come and I will teach you. Come and submit to me and I will take away from you all of those things that I, that I do hate, that I do revile, that, are, that is cursed, and that will be thrown into the fiery pits of hell. Come and I will take those things away. That, right? Reproof. When you, when, you, when you open the word of God and you read there something that describes you in negative terms, that judges you, how do, you, how do we usually respond? We don't like that. We don't like reproof, but that is the way of life. Following Christ, taking up our cross, following him, submitting to him, is the way of reproof, and it is therefore the way of life. Now, a church that doesn't discipline unrepentant members of its congregation, in fact, hates them. It hates them. It doesn't love them. If there is a church whose ministers and deacons will not deal with sin in the community, those, those ministers and deacons don't love those people. They hate them. Just like a father who doesn't discipline his son hates his son. And so when, when we do something like we did this morning, and, and people outside of our community say, oh, look at this weird cult and their unloving ways. Well, we are the cultists of the Lord Jesus Christ. I grant that, if you're going with the original Greek definition of the word. And I love these people too much not to discipline them. It is, in fact, love. And, and, and when we're talking about this subject, we're talking about the very definition of a word like love. What the world calls unloving is what the Lord Jesus calls loving. Let him be true and every other man or woman a liar. Now, church discipline is a means of grace for the congregation. It is also grace to the impenitent, for it is um, a way to speak the truth in love and those who are walking on the road of damnation. Now, I know of one, uh, two local cases, one where um, the ministers at a local CRC church stood up and read a statement like I did this morning, and, and the person that they excommunicated within three months was back, and repentant, and restored. And that is glorious. Now, there, there is another local big tent church, the kind of church you wouldn't normally think would do church discipline, did in fact excommunicate someone and that person quickly left that large church thinking that nobody would notice where they had gone and they went to another one of our local CRC churches not knowing that the pastors knew each other not knowing that in fact given the case that had just happened the CRC minister had been advising the pastor and so the two churches worked together and the person took the excommunication seriously because he saw that it wasn't just some kooky local church he was like wait what do you mean down the street they will uphold what you're doing here and that was shocking. And, and it, it was shocking to me. <laughs> it was shocking to the ministers involved. Because usually when one church does something like an excommunication, a lot of, a, a lot of other churches don't take it seriously. Whatever. You pack up, you go down the street, and, and you check into another church, and nobody asks any questions about where you've been or what you've been up to or what your standing is. Church discipline 
is divine authority delegated to us, the church, not to individuals, but to the church, by Jesus Christ to maintain order through the correction of persistently sinning church members for the good of those caught in the sin, for the purity of the church, and for the glory of God. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-13, through 13, Paul first tells the Corinthians that God has, in fact, set boundary markers. He has set boundary markers for his people as his own, and the Corinthians need to maintain those boundaries by disciplining a man in their church involved in, of all things, incest. Now, I mean... <laughs> You think, how would a church ever allow that kind of thing? Look around. Okay, we, we can go, in, in our church, you go to churches down the street, uh, this, this horrendous thing, we like to be like, how would a church ever allow that? How would you ever give communion to that guy? How would you ever take that guy's tithe check? How would you ever have, have stand next to that guy at the Christmas party and, and eat P.F. Chang's with him? Well, what, what I want us to see is that if we're not careful, we, we will look at things like this in Corinthians and think it's ridiculous when, when we ourselves tolerate other kinds of sins. And, and churches need to take the word of God seriously, obviously, and Paul's word to the Corinthians seriously, obviously. Because I, I guarantee you, this, my wife and I were just talking about this yesterday. We, we were talking about some people who we love who are in trouble and there's an obvious problem. And, and the one thing that we always like to talk about is, man, I, I am sure that our problems are just as obvious if someone would just tell them to us. <laughs> and it's like all I can do not to call people and be like, listen, what is the big glaring thing that I'm not seeing? Right? And so I, I don't want us to judge the Corinthians for allowing such a person in their community. I want us to think about who we're allowing in our community and the broader church community in, in the Seattle area, how are we not obeying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Now, the first thing that we learn is not to tolerate unrepentant sin. Now, we tolerate repentant sin, obviously, but we don't tolerate unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexually immora- sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among us. Now, Paul judges the man given to sexual immorality (coughs) by calling his behavior porneia. That's the word where we get porn from. It's a word with a very broad meaning covering all kinds of sexual impurity. Paul calls the Corinthians arrogant for not judging the man. Now, going back, isn't that exactly what the world calls us for judging someone? Oh, look at you arrogant people making these... Well, when the church doesn't judge someone according to the word of God, they they are, in fact, not humble, but arrogant. It's arrogant not to apply the word of God to one another. And, and this is one of the many ways in this text that we realize that the, God's ways and God's words are not like the ways and the words of the world. Now notice, it's arrogant, according to Scripture, to be tolerant of sin. Thus, that idol of modern man, tolerance, is arrogance. It's pride. Now, does that ring a bell? Is there perhaps an event that we now celebrate every year and it's shoved down our throats for the entire month of June and it's called Pride Month? Yes, because why? Because tolerating sin is always pride. It's always arrogance. We're like, oh, like you guys don't even know the, these unbelievers. You're like, you're going to call it Pride Month. That's funny. That's what God calls it too. 
But what you mean and what he means isn't the same. Just like when he says love and you say love, it's not the same thing. He calls it arrogance. They call it pride, and they're delighted by calling it pride. Now, not calling sin, sin, while tolerating sexual perversion and not disciplining a brother who is erring, that is arrogance. That is arrogance. And, and what this ultimately teaches us is that church discipline is humility and requires humility. Right? If you're, if you're watching a church go through a process like this and what you see is not humility, then it's not church discipline. To be imitators of Paul and Jesus means to speak hard words to the church when necessary, when they want to hear it, and when they don't. And I can testify to this fact. Right? True preaching, biblical preaching, is when you're saying what God says in season and out of season. When people want to hear it, and, when, and especially when people don't want to hear it. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, people cannot endure sound teaching. They can't. They lust after myths. They hear the word of God and they say, no, 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 that's not true. No, that's not where we came from. In the beginning, God what now? No, he didn't create anything. No, there's this myth now about where we all came from, right? And that's what, they don't want sound teaching. They create for themselves myths. That's what unbelievers and that is what um, the rebellious do. They cannot endure sound teaching, and they lust after myths. Myths about human origins, myths about pronouns and gender dysphoria, myths about biochemistry and pandemics, right? And when, and, and when the game doesn't work in their favor, they just change the meaning of the words. They'll create mythology right in front of you, right? In, in, in the last year, last year, 2022, on the, in the dictionary, online, they actually changed, of all things, the definition of a woman, now, I could have gone, right, and we think the pagans of old are, are, are worse than the pagans of today, but if I would have gone back to Rome, and I would have gone to worshipers of Zeus, at least they would have known what a woman is. They would have been confused about that part. And somehow these enlightened morons think that they are progressing, and all they're doing is rejecting sound teaching and, and lusting after myths. And myths explain origins. Myths explain purpose. Myths explain why we're here, where we're going, where we came from, what it's all about. And when people reject the word of God, they lust after myths. They don't just want them. They don't just invent them. I'm going to use that word. They lust after them. Now, when it is popular and when it is not, the response to these myths the myths of man's fevered brain, is the word preached in season and out. Now, biblical grace is not freedom to sin. It is freedom and power from sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Now, will you sin? Yes. Will, you, will it have dominion over you? No. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you let it have, right, when you, when you reject him, when you, re, you reject his word, when you reject his law, when you reject his salvation, what you get in spades is immorality, unbelief, darkness of minds, and you become an instrument of all kinds of unrighteousness. But we've been brought from death to life. So we have a way of dealing with sins. We, we, we can master it before it masters us. And we don't master it because we're phenomenal. We don't master it because we're somehow these the saints from the Catholic Church who now ought to be venerated. No, we master it because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when the sin occurs, you go, I know what this is called, and I know what happens if I pursue it. And I can look in your life and I say, hey, do you know what that's called, what you're doing? And do you know what will happen if you continue to do it? And in this way, we apply the gospel to ourselves first and to one another. And what we do is we, we do not let it have dominion over us. For freedom, we were set free. Now, grace lifts us up out of the deep morass of immorality. Abuse of such grace plunges us deeper than ever, or deeper than even the unbelievers will go. Now, that, that's something that Paul says that's very interesting. The sin that this man is committing make, makes even the unbelievers blush. And I find with Christian scandals, it's often that way. There are things that Christian ministers will do with their secretaries, the, the, the choir director will do, that shames. Even unbelievers are like, what in the world is going on over there? Okay? <laughs> I mean, we, we live in a pleasure palace over here, and we do whatever we want, and we still wouldn't have thought of doing that. It's shameful to us. It's shameful to us. And, and this is why when sin enters into a, a church, a community like this, and it goes unchecked, you will eventually, right, look so bad, it's so bad what you're doing, that even the unbelievers will look at you and mock you. You're like, wow, that's wicked. I mean, I've done some wicked things, but woo! And so we need humility here. Humility. What are we talking about? What, what, what is it that we're doing? What is it that we're not doing? What is it that we're believing? What is it we're not believing? What is it that we're allowing? What is it that, that we're not allowing? Right? What are the respectable sins in our own community? Because every community has them. You're like, oh, you, <laughs> that sin? Are you going to have pronouns? You're going to tell me what your pronouns are? You, <laughs> come on. Look at you, you evil person. Hey, let's all go, um, how about you all come over to my house on this weekend and we'll, we'll drink five or six bottles of wine, right? Now that sin, everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, let's do it. But if you start acting like unbelievers and you start putting pronouns on your name tags, right? Christians are like, oh, that's unacceptable sin, right? But how many sermons have you ever heard on gluttony? Do you know why I don't pre- preach on gluttony? Look at me. <laughs> right? Because with fear and trembling would I approach such a sermon. Now, why is it that in Protestant churches, you don't hear a lot on gluttony, overindulgence? Oh, no, but we will talk about pronouns. You just wait and see. Now, next, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, we learn to deliver such an unrepentant sinner over to Satan. Beginning in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment, 
on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. (coughs) Paul instructs the leaders of the church to do when you are gathered together, not alone in private session, what he as an apostle Christ has already done. Okay, this entire process didn't happen in a back room somewhere. Do you want to see, right, what do we present? Every communication that we had with the person. Every, every time we talk to them, we will print out and give to everyone. When we make judgments as a session, we didn't do it in secret. We did it publicly. We have nothing to hide. Because it's when we are together as the body out in the open, in the light, that is when the Lord Jesus approves of the things that we do. They are to judge the man. They're commanded to judge him. They are to, to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And this is what the Puritans explained. Even in this case, Satan is a minister of the Lord. Here, maybe Satan can bring him back to, the, to faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Do you, do you wanna, if, if you think your job is bad, okay, you think, man, my boss is terrible. Well, here, I will turn you over to a lithium mine in China, and you work there for a little while, and then you know what you'll want to do is you'll come back and be like, I'll take that master. And that is, in a sense, what they're saying here. You think the masters you have now are bad? Well, here, you can have Satan as your master, and we'll see how quickly you come back. And it's very much like Job 1. Satan, in this case, isn't necessarily an enemy. Even he is an instrument in the Lord's hands to bring people... To, to realize what is happening in their life. Now, these hard words reveal one of the purposes of church discipline, and that is to deal with the flesh, which means a rebellious orientation away from God. It's not just the skin, right? It's not, it's not the, the sack of flesh that you're in. It is a rebellious orientation away from God. That's what they, um, that is one of the purposes of church discipline, to address the flesh, Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 3.5-6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. We command believers to mortify the flesh and its desires. The church discipline, uh, church discipline is one of the means the Spirit employs to accomplish this task. Excommunication is the last step of a patient and loving effort to bring a strange child back to Christ and is, and is not hopefully the final word. Now, I mean, most of you maybe don't know this, but in this church, years ago, they excommunicated my little brother. And I sat right where you're sitting now while the whole thing, while the whole thing played out right in front of me. And, and, and about a year later, he came back and was restored. And, 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 I, and that was my hope when they did it, and it worked. Now, does it always work out that way? No. But, but <clears throat> this is why when, when the world says what we're doing is not loving and arrogant and prideful, all these things, what we're hoping to do is have this person restored to us. Now, I don't know what it's like in your house with little kids, but we have what we call misdemeanors and capital crimes. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can tell I worked at a courthouse. So the kids are always a little nervous. They're like, oh, man, was that a misdemeanor? You're like, ah, yeah, it's a misdemeanor. Come on, let's do some discipline. 
But then when it's a capital crime, it's almost, I mean, the other kids can tell because the, the look on my face. Okay, now, hold on, let me stretch. Because now we're going to do some discipline. Hold on. Get some icy hot on that shoulder. So in a church, if you have people committing misdemeanors and the church is like chucking people left and right out of all the windows and doors, that church is not using church discipline for its purpose. And and this is something that I've learned a great deal about because excommunication is like the extreme end of it. There's letters of censure. There's suspending people for a table from the table for a couple of weeks. There's meetings, right? There's people who come up and they have to read um, um, statements of repentance to the whole community. There's all kinds of forms that it takes, right? Any church that goes from zero to excommunication, get up and leave as quickly as you can because they don't know what it's for. It's, it's, it's serious business that you get to after a very long process. Now, One of the other benefits that comes from excommunication is that it purges the old leaven, not just from the individual, but from the whole community. And that's what we read in verses 6 through 8. It says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you uh, really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, Paul uses the imagery of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, to describe how we should live. The church is a body. It's the loaf. It is the, right? Jesus is the manna, the bread of heaven, and so we, the body, are a loaf. And just like one bad apple spoils the bunch, so a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I can testify in a number of these cases where you're dealing with discipline the, the sin, as, as you're getting ready to deal with it, does actually spread. And, and sometimes when you're dealing with cases like this, now you've got three cases going on because the stuff spreads very quickly. Because when, you, when you're dealing with idol worship, when you're dealing with people's flesh, when you're dealing with, oh, you can't do that, you're not allowed to do that, people don't always respond very well to that. It, the other thing is that if a person is here and they are living unrepentant sin, it gives ideas to other people. Other people are like, well, well, nobody's going to say anything to me about that, right? And maybe in your own marriage you live this way. There are things I don't bring up because I get the benefit of my wife not bringing up certain things. And, and, and if in your flesh you can live in this lifestyle where you're like, oh, that's okay, I'll give you a pass, and I know I'm going to get a pass. And, and, and what happens in a community is when there's sin that's unrepentant, sin that is winked at, sin that is welcomed, what eventually happens is you get this tit-for-tat kind of way of dealing with things. Well, he better not bring up my overindulgence because I'll have to bring up his anger. Well, they better not bring up my gossip because then I'm going to have to bring up the fact that he has a wandering eye. Right? And this, this is what happens in a community very quickly. The Passover was a celebration of being brought out of slavery in Egypt. And the great sin of Israel was that some of the Egyptian idols were brought out with them, according to Ezekiel 20. When they left Egypt, they didn't leave all 11 behind. And as they wandered, in, right, Ezekiel talks about it. They left Egypt, they brought some of the leaven of Egypt with them, which were idols, and and, and they were distracted by and led astray by those idols for generations on down to Ezekiel's day. And and what they needed to do was on the Red Sea shore, take all of those idols, put them in a giant pile and burn it and walk away from it. And and, and one of the things a, a faithful ministry in a church does is helps one another see, oh, listen, look, you brought things over with you. 
from unbelief. Now, I can actually testify to this um, because when, <laughs> sometimes when, when I was first converted at the age of 25, there would this, be this remarkable thing that would occur where I would feel like something is completely legitimate, but I noticed that nobody else did it. Like Nobody else uses that word in this Christian Bible study of nothing but men. I wonder if maybe you're not allowed to. And, 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 and so what I quickly was able to figure out by conduct of others is what I had brought with me. And, and the use of my tongue was one of them. Because let me tell you, there was one month when I was an unbeliever, I watched every Al Pacino movie. I was well known for having a bit of a um, coarse mouth. And my wife can testify to this because she knew me in those days. I, I, and if I'm not careful, I will drag that idol out from Egypt, set it up in the living room, and start bowing down to it very quickly. And, and this is one of the things that we have to be mindful of. What is it that you've brought with you? Now, other people who weren't converted later in life didn't bring things with them from that world, but, th- but they certainly will occasionally be like, you know what, let's, let's do a little um, investigative study on other religions. <laughs> they didn't bring the idols with them, but sometimes they're like, you know, let's just try this out. Let's just try this out. I, I'm worth a guy. Uh, there's, there's men who work in certain kinds of jobs, and those guys have nasty, a nasty way, coarse way of talking, and they want to be part of the group, and so they'll just take up this idol. I brought it with me. But what, however you get there, one of the things we are supposed to do for one another is find out the leaven that we've brought from the world and, and, and get it out. Throw it out. Because it will eventually affect all of us. Now, there is something that we often get very backwards, and that's the next thing that Paul talks about in verses 9 through 10. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So in some letter that we don't have, that, that's a whole sermon all by itself, he says, don't associate with the sexually immoral. You're like, okay, cool. Well, I will not then deal with anyone outside of the church. Except in the church, you have such a scandalous person that even the pagans are blushing. Right? They, they didn't understand what he meant. I don't mean the sexually immoral in the world, because how would you ever go out of your house? How would you ever go to Starbucks? How would you ever go to work? How would you ever ride the bus? How would you ever associate with anybody outside of the church? Now, what he is not saying is reject unbelievers because they're sinners. What What he was saying is don't associate in the church with people who call themselves brothers and sisters and who are living in unrepentant sin. That's the point. Every community, as I said, has respectable sins. We rail against abortion, but we wink at porn use. We rail against liberalism and yet are quite liberal-minded about gossip and gluttony. We curse drag queens and yet gather for drinking parties. We avoid sinners and yet remain chummy with brothers and sisters living in open rebellion. I wouldn't dare. Oh, I would never have lunch with that unbelieving woman at work. I'd never do that. But you'll sit in your living room with girls from church and gossip about your husbands, right? And that's, Paul says, listen, you got it backwards. You have to be a light in the world. You have to be around sinners. There's no way to avoid it. You're supposed to go out and baptize and disciple the nations. What he doesn't want is you sitting down and saying, okay, uh, uh, that, that behavior, even though it's sinful, it's a brother or a sister, I'm going to allow it. Because we're Christians, right? We get a free pass, grace abounds. And, 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 the, and the more sin abounds, the more grace abounds, right? right? I, I'll take care of that on Sunday morning when we all kneel down if I remember it. 
What God wants is us to be in the world, witnessing to the world, but not of it. And that's a, there's a big difference there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Go out there in the darkness and let the light shine. But when it comes to brothers and sisters, Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, in every way. Not some of the ways, in every way. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to call all sinners, whether they are believers or not, to repentance and holy living. It looks different when dealing with the household of God than it does with outsiders. It looks different. We cannot tolerate sin amongst those who call themselves children of God and yet think we will be faithful witnesses to the world because the, the world will see right through that. I don't know how many times I've heard, well, yeah, the church is full of hypocrites. And I have to say every time, yes, yes. I mean, that's obviously why I'm there, right? It's where hypocrites belong as a church because, because we're hypocrites. And what you do is you go down there and you find out exactly what the hypocrisy is and you kick it out. So come, all hypocrites, down into the church, and let us together deal with our hypocrisies. I love that accusation. I'm like, yeah, it is totally full of hypocrites, and you would be very welcome there. <clears throat> we cannot tolerate sin and yet think that we will have a faithful witness. The world will see right through it. What we have to do is, in, in light of this is keep watch on who we are keeping company with. And that's what he goes on to say next in verses 11 through 13 to finish the chapter. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? <coughs> Excuse me. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. First, notice the list of sins, and remember, but that for the grace of God go each one of us. You look at that list and you're like, oh, I recognize myself, and I recognize a few people from church. Why? Because we sin. And so we have to be very careful here when we're judging. Because what he's not saying is, sit down in your own mind with your Bible, with, with another friend, with your uh, spouse, and just be like, well, that person is a heretic and a sinner, and I condemn them. It's not a private matter that we're dealing with here. Okay, This list of sins describes a number of us in our former lives, and a number of us now if we're not careful. And so we should all, you know what, be careful. Now, some of these sins are easier to spot than others. All require wisdom to judge properly according to the video and not a mere snapshot. Now, this is what I mean by that. So if I followed you around for a day, that'd be creepy first off. I'm not going to do that, but just go with me for a second. And I waited until you were standing there at this line at Starbucks, cursing out the barista because they didn't put enough Splenda in your drink. And I took a photograph, and there's your angry face. And I was like, oh, look at this person. Look at this snapshot I took of this evil sinner. Now, if I had followed you with a video camera 
And I'd gone and you watch, sit down and you watch the whole video. Where, where might that one moment of sin and weakness fall into the larger picture? And, and this is one of those areas where it's like all of us need to put away the snapshots and start considering the videotape. Because if we consider the videotape, some people we would have to sit down and talk to, and some people we would have to ask for forgiveness from. Some people were judging in the completely opposite way that we should. This is why church discipline requires humility. This is why it requires the community. This is why it requires sober judgment and patience. But this kind of judgment, considering all the texts about church discipline, is not the kind an individual is ever to render, but rather the community under the authority of God. Now, in in verse 13, he actually quotes Deuteronomy 17. It says, The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands minister there before the Lord, your God, or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. When the church exercises its authority to discipline its members, it is upholding the Lord's authority. It purges covenant presumption, even as it purges the leaven, the unrepentant sin, from its midst. Because covenant presumption is the number one sin amongst conservative people like us. Right? We, we're like, well, we're all sons of Abraham here, right? We're all sons of Abraham. Like, I mean, come on, Jesus, stop judging me. Stop being all judgy. I've, I'm a Christian. I can show you my baptism records. I can, I can take you into my office and show you the piles of theology books. You'd be so impressed. You, you want to see what podcasts I listen to? We get so full of all the wrong things, and we get boisterous, and we get presumptuous. And we think, man, I have been a good boy. I've been a good husband, and so I'm going to spend 15 minutes alone on the, with this dark screen in this dark room because I deserve it. And, and, and I guarantee you right now, I just described probably 89% of you men at some point in the last couple of months. Because covenant presumption is the number one sin amongst people like us. Because we know all the answers. We know all the things. We do all the doings. And the purpose of something like today is to drive all of that out of us, to get us to think for a moment a little differently than we've been thinking, to ponder our own lives and one another's lives, to be more aware and a little bit more afraid because we're not nearly afraid enough in the sense of of standing before the awe-inspiring, magnificent Lord that we serve. Now... One of the verses, sets of verses that we don't understand is Matthew 18. It talks about the keys of the kingdom. Now, the, the, the reason we did this service this morning, this, this special statement, is because one of the things that the ministers of, of a, God's church do is it, it has keys, and it opens the door to heaven, and it brings people in through baptism, and it occasionally has to open the door and lead some people out and, because the church has the keys of the kingdom. The ministers say, okay, this is how we're going to define who comes in and who, go, and who goes out. And it's an important function that we have. And, and I'm telling you right now, I've been asked three times in the last two weeks if I belong to a cult because of what I'm doing. But I'm like, yeah, I do, again. If you're going with the old school version of cultists, yes. In fact, I'm in charge of quite a spectacular one. No, and I'm not in it for the money. 
right? I mean, this is like Creed from The Office. He says, yeah, it's, it's usually uh, you make more money when you lead a cult, but you have more fun when you're a member. <laughs> and <laughs> when you're talking about cults, right, people are in it for what? For themselves, for their flesh. But, but who of us in the last week did, participated in this whole thing because we had fun? Because this was super uplifting to me personally. It is a difficult thing to exercise the keys of the kingdom. To turn that lock, to let people in, you've got to be careful. And when you turn that lock to let people out, you've also got to be careful. But what the Lord Jesus said and what we all have to deal with is what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And go and find out what that means. Because it is a serious thing what we're doing. It's a serious thing when we baptize. It is a serious thing when we excommunicate. Now the scriptures, just to summarize what we've discussed, give us five things here that we've learned this morning. Okay, This is why we practice church discipline. To obey and glorify God. Obedience glorifies the Lord. We know from his word that he intends discipline for his church. We do not do it on our own authority, but submit to the word of God to his glory. Second, to restore the offender. Restoration is not promise, but it is the, the hope of our hearts that it would occur. Like every other step of discipline, the goal of putting the offender out is to, in fact, bring them back. That is the point. This answers the objection that discipline is harsh and unloving. The goal is not to destroy, but to give life, to build. Not to cast out, but ultimately to bring back. Now, third, to maintain the purity of the church. Sometimes the offender is not restored, but biblical discipline always contributes to the purifying of the people of God and prevents the profanation of the Lord's table. Biblical discipline provides the answer to the common objection that we are, in fact, just a bunch of hypocrites. Number four, to prevent God from his discipline. Now, this is what I mean. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, going back to the garden, the people of God like to hide, right? There, there are sinners who like to hide in the garden. You know where a good place is? a lot of people think, to hide from God amongst the saints. And there will be people who get all dressed up, who have, right, again, all the externals, and they will come here, and they think that somehow they're hiding from God amongst his people, and that as God is shuffling them all into heaven, he's not going to notice that there's one there that doesn't belong. Okay? And what, in, in Revelation, you say, look, you have people there who do not belong. You must get rid of them. Otherwise, I'm going to come, and I'm going to get rid of all of you. Now, number five, to deter against further sin. The consequences of sin deters others. If you are struggling with sin, observing the discipline of others will aid you in that struggle. Now, I studied criminology in college, and I was going to be a criminologist. That was, that was what I wanted to do. And I can tell you one of the number one things about punishing criminals is it puts the fear in everybody else. This is why I wrote a paper, which um, got a good grade, but was not very popular, about why we should bring back public executions. Why are we hanging these people in secret? Who are you going to make afraid when you do that? So when you punish sinners, right, this is what, there's courts in Indonesia. They, they, ha they have the judge, and here's the, defend the defender, offender, 
Okay, and he sentenced him, and they get out of Cain, and they beat them right there in the court 20 times and send them on their way. And I'm like, yes, boom, that sounds like Deuteronomy to me. Okay, when we do things like this, it's supposed to put the fear of God in everybody else. This is why, again, in my own home, I tend to spank kids in public. Of, I mean, in the sense of the community of my family. I don't drive them to QFC and spank them. That's not what I... All right, everybody in the car. No, I, because this is the thing that I teach people. Don't do it in secret. Do it where everybody else can see you. Because I, like, I guarantee you, it's going to have an effect on all the other kids. 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Quick and public. That's what it should be. Now, we must not misunderstand what is happening in discipline <coughs> or in formal excommunication. It's not shunning. It's not avoiding It's not as if this person is no longer welcome in our midst. They are welcome here to sit and enjoy worship with us at any time. No one is being told not to communicate with the person. No one is being told to shun them. No one is being told to go about in public and let everybody know how wicked and evil they are. Okay, we didn't make copies of all the evidence so that we could just, so we could go visit all the other churches and deliver the information over to everybody. That's not the point. It's not to to shun or to publicly humiliate. Sin is sin, and we cannot tolerate calling it anything else, even for the sake of our own straying children or friends, though. That's what we have to remember. right? It's not the same to fellowship with this person, but it doesn't mean that you can't fellowship with this person. Now, the individual under discipline is denied access to the Lord's Supper. They're not allowed to eat the bread and drink the wine. That's what exiled ex from the table of the Lord, communion. That's why it's called excommunion. That's the number one purpose. You're not welcome at this table because you, you have dirt on you that you're not repenting of. The offender is not to be denied kindness, courtesy, nor the duties owed to them. If you owe them money, pay them. Okay? If you have a business contract with them, fulfill the business contract with them. It's not as if because we put somebody out of the church now, what we're going to do is take the advantage of the person and treat them illy. That is not okay. Their lawlessness, however, cannot be an excuse for a lack of love toward them. Okay? Just because, right? Whatever a person calls whatever they're doing themselves doesn't make it so. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12 through 14. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Okay? Now, the, the person that we're talking about has committed a great deal of lawlessness. And what tends to happen to people is that makes our love grow cold. Right? And, and you look over the last five years. Look at all the lawlessness. Now, how, how is our love as a church doing in response to all that lawlessness, right? We watch cities burn to the ground. We watch churches close. We watch people lose their jobs. And what tends to happen is that accumulates to the point where we have lost our love for unbelievers. We have lost our respect for government. We have lost the gospel because, right, Jesus said, I, praying for them, I, they know not what they do. Just because a, an individual or society increases in lawlessness, does not give us the opportunity to let our love grow cold. And so be mindful and watch your own hearts. 
Watch your own actions. Watch your own words. Because right, those who are spiritual restore someone trapped in sin and be careful unless you fall into the same sin. Now, everybody, if you have a Bible, turn with me. And this is the close here. To Hebrews chapter 12. beginning at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. Now, in your struggle, (coughs) excuse me, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Consider this passage not only on the individual level, but as a whole congregation as well. This chastening, this discipline, is painful. It is. It's grievous. It is. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Obedience always does. Here is our opportunity now to weep together, to grieve together, and we should be grieved, to trust God together, and we should trust God, to fear God and his holiness together, to rejoice in the free gift of grace together, to thank God for his mercies, which are new every day together to pray together, to confess to one another, to hold one another up in the life which is ours in Christ Jesus together. Together we can strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. We can make straight paths for our feet, walking in the way that is Christ all the way, all the way back to our God and his God, our Father and his Father. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and amen. Father, we thank you for Paul and his letter to the Corinthians. I pray that as we think on these things and meditate on them, that we would be prayerful, that we would fear you, Lord, that we would (coughs) stand in awe of you, that we would seek you the more diligently. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. And I pray that you would bless us all today, forever, and amen.